0: You've got to be out of your mind. At some time or another in your life, you have either said those words, or they have been said to you by someone else. Yeah, you've seen it, right? Uh, when I was in junior high school, I had this—I uh, had this curmudgeon of a um, of an English teacher. I lived in South Florida in Hollywood with my grandparents at the time, and this man was a—he um, was very sarcastic, a Jewish bachelor. He. Um, he, uh, he always had this sort of scowl about him, and, and he was fair. I mean, it was terrifying, really. I liked him because he was interesting. But you could tell he was counting the days to retirement. And he thought that every day between that and the retirement date, he was going to punish you with some sort of uh, pain. that he could. And one day, I remember, he's given this boy an earful for not turning in his homework on time. Andrew, why didn't you turn in your homework on time? Oh, no, 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 no. He's going on and on and on and just berating this young man right in front of the whole class, seventh grade, you know. And the boy this terrible scowl on his face. And the teacher said, "Andrew, why are you scowling?" He said, "Because you're making me mad." My teacher said, "No, I'm making you angry. Dogs go mad. People get angry." I thought, "Oh my goodness." Thirty years later, I remember distinction. <laughs> you know, dogs go mad. People get angry. When someone says, you've got to be crazy, you know, it's oftentimes sort of a compliment, isn't it? You know, you have real courage. You'll do something nobody else would do. Uh, Did you really say that to her? I mean, my goodness, do you know what that woman can do to you? You know, you've got to be crazy. You've got to be mad. You should party with Barry sometime. That guy is crazy. You know, I mean, these are compliments that you give to someone. It's, it's, It's sort of a badge of honor, usually, when you say... I told you before, when, when I was a boy, Evil Knievel. Oh, goodness. Evil Knievel was. Do you remember him? Do you remember Evil? Um, he, he strapped a rocket to his rear end and tried to jump the Snake River Canyon and failed and lived. So maybe it was a success, an ironic sort. That guy was crazy. And people would gather in the stands and watch him on TV and. And little Joe Boisel, you know, seven or eight years old, was glued to the set to watch Can Evil. We throw the world all around all the time, don't we? You're crazy. You must be mad. You're, she's insane. And we don't mean really you're crazy, you're mad, you're insane. It's an exaggeration, isn't it? A figure of speech. It's hyperbole. Unless it isn't. In which case we don't use the word at all. I mean, when a person's really dealing with mental illness, when we really are talking about that, we stay away from those words. When we're talking in the clinical sense, we don't use that word. We don't talk about you're crazy, you're mad, you're insane. At least not until there's some sort of intervention. I want you to imagine imagine for a moment that you're running a shop somewhere, you know. Perhaps it's an ice cream shop. And by the way, as an aside, if you're ever running an ice cream shop, you better call me, okay? But, but imagine you're running an ice cream shop or some sort of little shop like that, and and, um, and in comes a fellow. And he starts talking to himself. Not just sort of, you know, what a kind of ice cream but I mean talking to himself in conversational style. And he's answering himself, and it's as if there's two or three people right there with him, but it's him all alone. You would be worried about that person, wouldn't you? You would call a co-worker over and say... I think this guy is crazy, you know? I mean, watch out for us. You know, keep an eye on him. Or suppose you knew of a college-age person, a, a son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew, and they started developing signs of schizophrenia. Wouldn't it be so funny then, would it? It would be serious. You'd say to your, your husband or wife, your, you know, some friend, is she out of her mind? Is she losing her grip on reality, because I think one of the most serious things that can happen to a person, one of the things that, most fearful, is if they lose their grip on reality. If their mental faculties cease to, you know, that's why we worry about Alzheimer's and dementia. It, it could it just ravages a person. I was listening to uh, to NPR this week, and there was a uh, maybe it was last week. There was a, a, an interview with this woman, uh, Mira Bartok, and and she's a, a writer and a poet, and and she um, she was talking about her mother's battle with schizophrenia. And she said her mother had become so violent in her schizophrenia, so, so out of control, that, that she and her sister actually changed their names and moved to different addresses so their mother couldn't find them. And she said in the interview, imagine this. You have a mother out there. She gave birth to you. And she loved you. And you loved her. And you have no idea where she is, and you won't even know when she dies or where she dies. Her mother's name was Norma Herr. She was living in a homeless shelter in Cleveland. And someone at the homeless shelter actually tracked Mira down. I don't know how they found her because she had changed her name and all this different. But they tracked her down and found her and said, you know, your mother is near the end of her life, and and she would love to see you. And so she went and saw her and reconnected with her mother at the end of her life. But as I listened to the interview, it was clear. The pain of mental illness, the division that it brought about, the the, the destruction of family relationships was real. It was ongoing. In Mark's Gospel this morning, he tells about Jesus and how Jesus had begun to, to become famous. In fact, he had begun to, 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 to bring large crowds around him. He'd been working miracles, casting out demons, healing people. And, and, and so widespread was his fame that he often would go into a house and a crowd would push into a house all around in the community. They would be all around the home, so much so there wasn't even room to get a meal. I mean, you have to imagine a home in the first century. It was small, the size of your living room probably. And in there would be, you know, a divider maybe in two rooms. And imagine it so filled with people that you can't even get to the cupboard to get something to eat. People hanging outside in the yard around looking through the windows. This is what it's like for Jesus in the early days of His ministry. In fact, I want you to hear some passages from Mark's Gospel that precede the Gospel lesson today. In chapter 2, Mark says there was a time when four men came bringing to Jesus a paralytic. And they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof and they they let him down through the opening. There were so many people that these guys climbed up on the roof, tore open a hole in the roof... I don't, they are not friends of the homeowner, let me tell you that, right? Anybody who's ever owned a home doesn't like these people. But they, they let their friend down through a hole in the roof because they couldn't get through the crowd. In chapter 2, Jesus went outside beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him. And he was so filled was the homes that He had to go outside to the beach in order to have a large enough area for the crowd to gather. And that leads us up to chapter 3, where today's lesson is found. But earlier, Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd, many, many people, so many, this is a way of saying much many. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. You can say it when you're 5. You can't say it when you're 35, right? Much many. There were much many people out there, so many that they just packed around him that he had to get away. The crowd came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. That's like saying they came from Hudson and Jordan and and Cleveland. They were from everywhere just pulling in, packing around to see Jesus. Twice, Mark says in this chapter, a great crowd. And Jesus told His disciples in chapter 3 verse 9 to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd... Lest they crush Him. So here's the image you have to have. Jesus has become famous. So famous that people from everywhere are trying to get close to Him. So famous that His life is in danger. He can't have anything to eat. There's no time to do anything. They're all over the place. Jesus has become rock star famous. Except with his family. Not so famous with his family. In fact, maybe a bit of an embarrassment. You probably haven't seen this in the Bible. It probably slips right by you. When, you, when you're, It's easy for it to slip by you. I want you to take your bulletin and look with me at the Gospel lesson, will you? Take the, in the Gospel lesson, in verse 21, towards the beginning when his family heard about the crowds that is when when they heard it they went out look at this to restrain him for people were saying he has gone out of his mind that is a bad translation let me tell you that is not the way Mark wrote that text listen to what the New American Standard does with it and when his own people heard of this when his family heard of this they went out to take custody of him For they were saying, who? His own family was saying, he has lost his senses. Another way to translate this, he's beside himself. He's lost his mind. He's gone insane. His family is saying, he needs to be rescued, not from the crowd. Listen to this. Jesus needs to be rescued, not from the crowd, but from himself. He's a danger to himself. He's deluded. He's lost his mind. This isn't, oh, he's crazy. You should party with him sometime. No, this is, he's losing it. He's going insane. His own family's saying this. But that's not all. There are other considered opinions. Somebody gets on the phone. Not really, but they get on the phone and they call Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They want to call Harvard, you know. They, they want to find the... Give me, give me the best professors you have of theology. Send them down. Let's let's, let's get them on the phone. Yale, Harvard, Cambridge. We, we want these people down here. We need somebody who has real expertise. Verse 22. Look at that with me. The scribes. The scribes is a way of saying the Bible scholars, the, the theologians, the learned people, the the doctors of theology. You know, the, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, here's what they said. He has Beelzebul. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Did you hear that? They didn't say Jesus was demon possessed. They didn't say he's got some evil spirit. They said this guy is the devil himself. He is the most wicked, most evil person in the, in the universe. He is the devil. Not has a devil, not has a demon. He is wicked. He is an evil liar. This is what the religious professionals, the clerics, the learned scholars of religion are saying about Jesus. So it pushes us to a question. Who in the world is this Jesus? Who was the Jesus of the first century? Who was the man who healed people and cast out demons, fed the hungry, raised the dead? Was he a madman? Was he insane? A lunatic? Self-deluded? Egomaniac? Was he an evil person? Wicked? Like Hitler, kind of wicked? This is what the people were saying about him. Some years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book, And in it, he tried to dispel the the notion that we look at Jesus like a great moral teacher. He said, you know, you can't really look at Jesus that way. In fact, he tried to say, there's the end of this. I want to put an end to it. Listen to what he wrote in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes... This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up or a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not continue with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He concludes it this way. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange and terrifying and unlikely it may seem, I have come to accept the view that he was and is God. I think Lewis is right. Jesus doesn't leave us with an option. We can't say, you know, he's like a great Eagle Scout. What a great guy. But, you know, don't really think that. No. He was what Lewis said. We have a trilemma to deal with. Either Jesus was a lunatic or a liar or he was the Lord. He forces us to look at him and answer those questions which was it that he was. He was. Either He was a lunatic and and, and self-deluded or a liar and has led billions of people astray or He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the firstborn of the dead. He He is God, the Creator God incarnate and lives and reigns forever and ever. And today, Today, we all come to this point where we too have to, answer. we can't ignore him. I'm sorry you came today <laughs> because you have to, I'm not really, you have to answer the question. You today have to answer the question Who is Jesus? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he the Lord? You have to make that decision. What is your verdict? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.